when Jesus walked around this earth around 2,000 years ago, he had a favorite title that he used for himself. He had a certain something that he liked calling himself more than anything else. And maybe, to your surprise, his favorite title was not Son of God, neither was it Lord, and neither even was it Christ or Messiah. Instead, by far, his favorite title to use for himself was the title Son of Man. Son of Man. Maybe you've noticed that before when you've read the Gospels. But but what's going on? Why is he calling himself that? On the one hand, it could be emphasizing his humanity. right? If you were to call yourself a son of a man or a son of a human, then it's saying, I am a human being. And he, he is a human being. He became a human being for us and our, for our salvation. But that doesn't seem to be all there is when he uses this title, Son of Man. See, Jesus is really skilled at teaching, to say, to say the least. I hope you read the Gospels and are amazed at this man's teaching. And so he knew exactly what he was doing when he used this title. And it seemed to be clearly that he was saying more than he's just a man. For example, he'd say things like this. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Strange, no mere man can do that. Or he'd say, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Interesting. Or he'd say that there'd be a time when the Son of Man will come in glory. So when he says that he's the Son of Man, don't let anybody tell you that he's just saying he's a, he's a mere man. Clearly, the Son of Man is the forgiver. He's the way to forgiveness. He's going to come one day in glory. But still, why? Yes, it shows he was a man, but why was this his favorite title? It's a little awkward sounding, right? Son of Man. Why was this his favorite title? Where did it come from? And that leads us to Daniel 7. Most people agree that this is the place where Jesus was referring to when he used the term Son of Man. When he used that term, it had a specific Old Testament reference. As we go through Daniel 7 this morning, we're going to see why he loved this title so much. So as we go through it, we're going to spend our time into two main parts because the text is split into two main parts itself. As you'll see, the first main part is this dream. Daniel receives this dream. That's verses 1 through 14. And the second part, very simply, is an interpretation of the dream, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. So we got the dream and then the interpretation of the dream. During the dream, the focus is going to be on this Son of Man. So we're going to be asking, who is this Son of Man? But then something strange happens. See, while the, first, the, while the dream is about God and the Son of Man, we'll get into that, In the interpretation, all of a sudden the focus goes from God and the Son of Man to God's people, to to us. And so we'll be asking there, what does this have to do with the people of God? So Daniel's dream gives us an answer to both. So with that being said, let's now dig in together. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. Once again, just a reminder, what we're asking in this first part is, who is this Son of Man? Let's read verse 1 to start, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. I want to stop there just for a second, just to point out that Daniel is underneath King Belshazzar of Babylon. And that's important just because if you remember in chapters 5 and 6, he was already underneath the Persian Empire. But we're going back in time a little bit, so Daniel is still living underneath 
the realm of Babylon. So that being said, now we're going to read verses 2 through 8. And just as a forewarning, you're going to see a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism, a lot of terrifying words and things. But the point here is there's going to be four beasts, with the fourth beast being the most terrifying. So that being said, stick with us. We're going to read verses 2 through 8 of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So we got four beasts. You notice that. So what is going on? Well, the interpretation in the second half, which we'll get to in a little bit, it tells us that these beasts represent kings and kingdoms in Daniel's future. And most scholars agree with the, the identity of at least the first three beasts. The fourth one's up to question, but the first three beasts. The first one seems to be Babylon, represented by Nebuchadnezzar, who's called a lion elsewhere in Scripture. Second, as we know from Daniel already, is the Medo-Persian Empire, which took over after Babylon. And the third seems to be Greece. And this is amazing prophecy. Look down with me at verse 6. This beast is said to have four wings of a bird on its back and four heads. And if you know anything about history, the, the, the Greek empire, Alexander the Great, when he died at a young age, his kingdom was immediately split into four different territories, four different governors, four different successors. So that's amazing prophecy. So we have Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece. The question becomes, what about this important and terrifying fourth beast? So I'll say there's two main options. The first is it could be the ancient Roman Empire, which was the largest empire out of all of these at the point. And this, if this is the case, would lead us into Christ's first coming. Or it could be some sort of future kingdom, an antichrist. And if that's the case, then this is leading us into Christ's second coming. Or it could be a little combination of both. Those who hold, those who hold to those opinions have their arguments. The same with the little horn in verse 8. It could be a really fierce ancient Roman king, or it could be a future antichrist. But I won't say more about that now. Many have their opinions, but I intentionally don't because I don't think it's the main point of the passage. In fact, it's really interesting, in the interpretation, which we're reading a little bit, Daniel asks specifically about more details about this fourth beast because he's interested in it like me and you might be. And he's given more details, but it's not specific enough where it proves if it's either Rome or a future Antichrist. It's still kind of up in the air. And so, go ahead, please, have your pen and study this, but it's, it's, it's not the main point of the passage. The point is to set us up for what's to come. 
See, verses 1 through 8 are supposed to be terrifying. Terrifying. Can you imagine having this nightmare? This whirling sea, this storm, these, these beasts, these creepy beasts that are told to be terrifying and dreadful. They're commanded to devour much flesh. They're fierce, they're strong. All looks lost and chaotic and terrible. You can imagine how Daniel felt, right? But then, the scene changes. I love the beginning of verse 9. Just look at those first three words. As I looked. In the midst of this nightmare, all of a sudden, he sees God reigning over it all, more powerful than any of these beasts. He knows what he's doing with all these beasts. So that being said, now let's read verses 9 through 12. We'll see God reigning. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and for a time. So do you feel that, brothers and sisters? That's true reality. All might seem chaotic, but the Ancient of Days is ruling. And notice, it is important that he's called the Ancient of Days here. Because one thing we know about all rulers, whether back then or today, is that they die. Mere men. God, in contrast, has always ruled and always will rule. Think of it this way. He was the sovereign king during Nebuchadnezzar's little reign, during Cyrus's little reign, during Alexander the Great's little reign, during the Caesars, and through all the kings and rulers since. He's always been the king. And, if you maybe notice, our text makes it clear in the end of verse 10 and 11 and 12 that he's the judge. He's the judge. He's watching and so whether you believe that this fourth beast is ancient Roman Empire or some future Antichrist, the point still stands. This beast does not win. Cannot win. God's in control. So take heart. In the midst of all the chaos, when everything looks dreadful and terrifying, God reigns and he will make all wrongs right. That is our hope. But you might be wondering... What about the Son of Man? Right? We haven't heard anything about him yet. I thought this was about the Son of Man. And that then brings us to verses 13 and 14. And this is the climax. We had the chaos. We had God ruling. But now we get to God's full response to everything going on in the world. So let's re read. And remember, this is Jesus' favorite title. Let's read verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel sees one like a son of man. This is supposed to be in contrast to the beasts, the the animal-looking kings. Now we have one that's a man. But still, son of man. It's a little strange. sounds strange. So what does he do? He goes to the Ancient of Days. He goes to God, and God does something incredible. God gives him this most incredible kingdom. I mean, notice how jam-packed verse 14 is. He is given a kingdom and glory. And then who's in the kingdom? All nations, all peoples, all languages. And then incredibly, how long does this kingdom last? It's everlasting. That point's made over and over The most amazing thing about that, brothers and sisters, is that's not hyperbole. That's not an exaggeration. His kingdom will go on and on and on and on and on for millions and billions of years. This son of man will continue to reign. So who is this son of man? We've seen three things. Just a way to review. Three things so far. It's God's king against and over all the world powers. He's the king forever. Unlike all these other kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander, Caesar, anybody else, he'll never be deposed, he'll never take, take a, a seat off the throne. He will always be king. He's the global king. Right? All nations and peoples and languages, there will be a beautiful, multi-ethnic congregation worshiping Jesus on the last day. I hope you look forward to it. God's king, the forever king, the global king. But there's one last thing, one fourth thing about this son of man that's really fascinating. And for this, we're going to have to peek ahead into the interpretation in verses 21 through 22. So if you want to look there, verses 21 through 22. And here, Daniel's being given an interpretation about the beast and the horn. But this is what the angel says. Verse 21 and 22. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, once again, this could either be referring to Jesus' first coming in the midst of the Roman Empire when he did come, or Jesus' second coming uh, at the last day. But notice who's coming. The Ancient of Days is coming. So who is this son of man? He receives the kingdom from the Ancient of Days, right? And he goes to the Ancient of Days. He goes to God and gets the kingdom. And he's the Ancient of Days himself. He is God. Brothers and sisters, the the Trinity is no made-up thing by theologians. It's pressed upon us by this book. So Jesus himself is the Ancient of Days. He himself is eternal. He was never created As Pastor Chris read at the beginning of the service, he himself is the one who's from everlasting to everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, Jesus is God. And so maybe you're starting to see why Jesus loved this title so much. It communicated so much about who he was, who he is. On the one hand, it was humble. It was a humble title, son of man. He he, he was and is a human like, like you and me, he, he knows what it's like to be tired, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be tempted. You can resonate with this son of man. You can draw near to him as a fellow human being. And, on the other hand, he's this Daniel 7 figure. 
God's king, king forever of all the peoples, and even God himself. It's incredible. So there's, two, there's tons of applications we could make from this. We should stand in awe of our king. We should trust him. He's the true king. We should pursue global missions and pray for global missions because he's going to be worshipped by people all over the world. We should look forward to the future ahead. But as I was studying this, I was especially struck by two things, and they're similar to each other. First, brothers and sisters, our Bible is incredible. Our Bible is incredible. I mean, all the perfect predicting of nations, all the ways this term Son of Man connects perfectly with who Jesus is, it's stunning. I mean, I've read a lot of the Quran. I've read most of the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the Hindu texts, and nothing compares to this. We've all read a lot of books in this room. Nothing compares to this. The predictions, the connections, the wisdom, how it endures, it's, it's incredible. So honestly, please go home and read it. You want to know this God in the midst of your chaos? Then read his word. This is where you get to hear from our king. Maybe you haven't read the Bible in a while, honestly. Well, go home and do it. Maybe just start in the New Testament. See who this Son of Man is. You won't regret it. Second app is, is similar. Second application is similar. The Bible is incredible, yes. But I was especially struck by the brilliance of this man, Jesus. I mean, this man... God, man, yes, this, but he was brilliant. He was a genius. I mean, the way he uses this term, son of man, in connections with other things is fascinating. For example, here's what I was struck by. When he says, the son of man came to give his life as the ransom for many, he tells the entire gospel. Just think of this. The son of man, the gospel is God becomes a man, dies for his people, rises and reigns forever, Right? So he says the Son of Man, which implies God from the Old Testament, but also God becomes a man. He goes to give his life as a ransom for many. He dies. But then since he's the Son of Man, who reigns forever, he can't remain dead. So this implies the resurrection, too, and he rises and he reigns forevermore. Do you see that? This man was genius. It's brilliant. And so go home and read the Bible, but especially read the teachings of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never really heard Jesus out. Go home. Take your Bible home, please. Read the Gospels. Hear what he has to say. He is the Son of Man. He is King forever, and we get to have a relationship with him, and we get to hear from him in his word. So let's do it. We'll find something here better than anything the world can offer. So, that's the dream. Verses 1 through 14, we got chaos. We got God reigning. Specifically, we got the Son of Man reigning. And now we turn to the interpretation, which is verses 15 through 28. And as we said earlier, something strange happens here. We'll notice that the beasts are still talked about and they're said to be kings, but the emphasis changes from God and the Son of Man to God's people, to us. It's a strange thing. So we'll look into it. We're going to ask, what does this have to do with the people of God? That being said, we're going to start reading just the first paragraph. And this is kind of like a quick summary interpretation of the whole dream. Verses 15 through 18. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So Daniel's anxious. He's given a quick interpretation. You see that in verse 18, or 17, the four beasts are four great kings. Okay, we get that. But then notice verse 18. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. Now, just to let you know, saints is not a special category of Christians. If you trust in Jesus, if you're a believer in this God, you are a saint. But what's going on? I thought the Son of Man gets the kingdom. But now the saints get the kingdom. Now, before we answer it, we're actually going to read the rest of the chapter, the more detailed interpretation. I want you to notice this problem keeps coming up. So stick with us. We're going to read verses 19 through 28 and finish out the chapter. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked... This horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former one and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom, kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So notice in verse 19, right there towards the beginning, Daniel asks for more information about the fourth beast, and he's told things like this beast is going to speak great things until the Ancient of Days come. And then in verses 23 to 27, basically the same thing said again, that this is going to rise up until the kingdom comes and the Ancient of Day comes. And once again, this could either be Rome or a future end-time Antichrist. And it could be Rome, because when Jesus comes, he says, the kingdom's here. Well, saints, if you're a Christian, you, you're in the kingdom. You possess the kingdom. We have the keys to the kingdom. But it also could be some future Antichrist or big, uh, big uh, uh, nation or kingdom at the end of time, because... We all know that we're going to fully possess the kingdom to come. But the emphasis isn't on the beast. The emphasis in these verses, once again, is on the saints. And that's the issue, once again, we have. Why is it that the saints and not the Son of Man are given the kingdom here? I mean, even notice, maybe notice the middle of verse 27. This is bold. The Bible says this, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven 
shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's incredible. So whose kingdom is it? The Son of Man's or these saints? And maybe you're already starting to see the answer. And this is where, once again, this Bible is brilliant. It shines. See, in the New Testament, when this Son of Man comes the first time, when the King himself arrives, he doesn't just announce that his kingdom is here. He invites others into the kingdom. But not only that, this is where it gets incredible, he doesn't just invite others in. He invites others to possess the kingdom with him. Here's some three New Testament examples. Maybe you've heard of these before. First, it's not just that the king reigns. It's true. But if you trust Christ, we reign with him. Ephesians chapter 2. It's not just that the king conquers as the king. But if you trust Christ, we are conquerors through him. Romans chapter 8. Let's make it even more clear. It's not just that he, as the king, possesses the whole entire earth, but that we, God's people, possess the earth. In the future, you probably know this, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 very clearly, the world is yours. You see how Daniel 7 works. The first part this dream, and it's about the Son of Man reigning and ruling and triumphing. And then the second part is about us, about God's people. We triumph. We possess a forever kingdom through the Son of Man. And so practically, the question is for us, are you in the kingdom? How do you know you're in the kingdom? How, how do you know you'll live and conquer forever through this Son of Man? And it really comes down to this. Do you really trust and treasure this king? The son of man, do you trust him? If you don't, then you're living for this world, for this this fleeting kingdom, and, and his judgment is coming. But if you do, by God's grace, you do trust him, then all that's going on with the world right now, with politics and nations, it's not your main focus. This is not your kingdom. There can be a place for that. This is not our kingdom. As this text isn't mainly about beasts, we shouldn't overly focus on modern-day rulers. Instead, our focus is on the reigning Son of Man. And that we, that we with all of our sin and hurt and baggage and brokenness, that we triumph and outlast all of this through Him. That we are conquerors. That we, in this Son of Man King, have a brighter future than we could ever imagine. And so in the midst of all this chaos, take comfort. Take comfort. That's why this, this whole chapter is here, by the way. It's to encourage and comfort God's people. It isn't mainly here, mainly here for us to dissect kings and dates, though there could be a place for that. That's not the main point. The point is comfort. Notice at the end of verse 28, the last words of the, of the whole chapter, Daniel says this, My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, don't think that means that he's being secret about this. It's written here. Instead, what that meant is he kept it close in his heart. It comforted him. It was important to him. Remember, Daniel's in exile. All looked bleak. He didn't know what was coming. He didn't know what was happening. As does our world and lives sometimes today, right? 
take heart. Keep this close to your heart. The Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, reigns. He came. He's going to come again. And if you trust him, you will overcome. You will outlast all the chaos and brokenness here through him. So this is Daniel chapter 7, right? We've got chaos. We've got beasts. We've got rulers. We've got God reigning. We have the Son of Man having a forever kingdom and, and God's people having a forever kingdom through him. So as we come to a close, we'll end with these words from an old John Newton hymn. They fit so well to Daniel chapter 7. John Newton, you probably might know, is the, the man who wrote our famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He also wrote this. As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall triumph in him too. Jesus is the Son of Man. He triumphed. But also, you that love his name shall triumph in him too. And that's a perfect way to say it. Because do you understand who the Son of Man is? Do you marvel at the Son of Man? But most importantly, do you love him? Do you love this Son of Man? If you don't, then you need to get on the side of the king. If you don't love this Son of Man, you aren't part of his kingdom. Instead, you will receive his right judgment. But you can come to him now. You can trust him now. You can come to him and see how beautiful, brilliant, and lovely he truly is. But if you're here, and by God's grace, you do love him. And as Newton said, as surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall triumph in him too. The kingdom is yours, both now and forever. So look at all around you this week, all that's going on, all that seems powerful and important and overwhelming. It's all fleeting. Because you're in the king, you will outlast. The bright future of Christ is coming. The bright future of the saints, the people of God, is coming. The world is soon to be renewed for the infinitely better. So take heart. You know the king. You overcome in the ancient of days in the king. You will possess the earth forever. You will outlast all the chaos here. Let's live in light of this, brothers and sisters. Let's love and trust and live for our ancient of days, our king forever, our son of man. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you right now. We praise you for being that ancient of days, for being the king, for being the son of man. Christ, we pray that you may allow us to really treasure and trust you. That you may allow us to focus on you, to live for you. And Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room right now who doesn't really trust you, who doesn't really see you as beautiful, that Christ, you may show them how wonderful you are. You are better than anything this world can give. That you may change their hearts. And for those of us here, Jesus, who do know you, who do love you, we thank you for that. That you may allow us, Jesus, to go forth into our lives and into the world and truly live knowing that you reign. Truly trust you. Truly live for your glory. We thank you, Jesus. We'll thank you forever because of who you are. In your good and wonderful name we pray. Amen. Let's now